Hi team, and thanks for tuning in to the Savvy Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Asia, who's a CEO of Drizzle Honey, a honey products company sold across North America that focuses on sustainability and innovation. She was able to combine her passion for sustainable food production with her passion for startups and entrepreneurship. Asia is super enthusiastic about bringing innovation to market and bolstering female entrepreneurship. And during this episode, she's going to share her secrets on how she was able to grow her company across North America, enter the e-commerce business, and continuously innovate before the pandemic and during. And with that, let's just jump right in. Hi, Asia. We're so excited to have you on here. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Maria. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so you have a very interesting story, and I want our listeners to obviously know more about it from you. You started your own company, and you became a beekeeper in urban Calgary. So please tell us more about what you do and how did it start? So my name is Asia. I'm the founder and queen bee of Drizzle Honey. And I got my start when I was working in the college here in Calgary. I was working on agriculture research and specifically urban agriculture research. So that's how agriculture and food are brought into urban environments. And I was working on a beekeeping project where we looked at sustainability of rooftop beekeeping as a business venture. It was one of those projects I couldn't believe I was getting paid for. It uh, just was a lot of fun to work on. The culinary students got to harvest the honey from the rooftop, and uh, we got to teach some, some of the summer student uh, kids about honey and beekeeping. And when I learned a lot about the honey industry through those projects I was working on, I found that there's a gap in the market both in terms of lack of innovation but also sustainability. There was bee decline issues. And uh, there was no product on the market that had a real millennial spin to it. And uh, no one was using social media or had beautiful branding and packaging. And I just felt that was something I could fill the gap with. And uh, so I launched the product just at Artisan Markets and then had a lot of retailers approaching me and I knew I needed to go full time with it. I love the story. Okay, so then what was your secret to creating a product that everyone wanted? Because it's not easy to get into the stores and definitely not easy what you've done over the past years. So what was the secret sauce? The secret sauce? Well, I think it was just having something different. It's like any buyer at a retailer, at a retail location, whether it be grocery or, you know, a gift shop, they see so many products. Like you said, it's not easy to get in. Just bringing something different that is really well done. Like I never just sent a, a bad sell sheet or, or a, an email that wasn't put together nicely. Uh, I made sure everything looked really good before I ever launched it. And it was different. We had innovation. We were doing things like no other honey company was doing. And I guess, how was the growth project? So you guys went from doing it in your backyard to actually doing it full-time professionally. Tell us more about the challenges of that process. Sure. So I, I started yeah, in doing beekeeping in my backyard and then I got allergic to bees right when I decided I was going to go full time with Drizzle. I think it was like one or two weeks after I quit my job 
and was harvesting honey to bottle it up when I was just still very small scale and got allergic to bees. But through the research I was doing at the college, I knew a lot of beekeepers. I knew kind of how the industry worked. And so I tapped into that network and started working with beekeepers that met my sustainability objectives. And through that, I was able to partner with a facility and we were just able to get the product food approved and out to mass market way faster than had I just continued playing with bees in my backyard. Because then I was able to focus on the product and the marketing and the sales versus the beekeeping. So it was a blessing in disguise, I think. What about going to other markets? So obviously in the US, I think you have a few locations there, but are you guys everywhere in the US or are you trying to get in? We are selling on Amazon.com right now and we are, I wouldn't say trying to get in. We have a plan around getting in. So we're going to be executing it over the next uh, 12 to 18 months with the rollout of our wholesale into the U.S. And then we do sell e-commerce from our, our website, drizzlehoney.com, anywhere into the U.S. right now. So we have some customers there and we'll be planning a rollout over the next uh, few years here. Now, the plan for e-commerce, was it before the pandemic or during the pandemic? It's interesting because e-commerce is always a big thing. I think the type of product we have, we always had e-commerce set up and we focused a lot on wholesale. E-commerce definitely was a smaller piece of our business, but we had been working on our Amazon platform six months prior to the pandemic. We were just very lucky with timing because it, it takes a long time to set it up. It's a very confusing platform if you want to get boosted up to the top of it. Yeah, you need an expert to work on it with you. And so we had, had six months worth of planning and then the pandemic hit and we launched on Amazon. I think it was March first. Maybe it was April 1st. I remember it was within like a few weeks of the lockdown. So it was perfect timing for us. So it was perfect timing. Okay. What what drove you to go to Amazon versus just doing your own thing on your own retail store? Well, we do do our own thing on our own retail store on, on our website, but there's just a huge market on Amazon and it's hard to get away from. It's a marketing piece as well as a sales piece. So I think, I don't want to say anything too bad about Amazon on here. They're hard to work with. They take a huge, huge chunk. That's why small businesses do not like Amazon. Every small business would prefer that nobody shops on Amazon because it's just very difficult um, to make any money when you work with them. However, it is somewhere that everybody shops, everybody looks, even if they're just looking for a honey brand or a brand of any kind, a lot of people just check Amazon first and then might go off of the Amazon platform and buy it somewhere else. It's just like a catalog, a marketing catalog, really. So that's why we felt we had to. And then, of course, with the pandemic, everyone was on Amazon. Nobody knew what to do. Stores were shutting down, but Amazon was right in our faces. And so it was obvious that we had to be on there. So I guess the timing was great. What's the secret to scaling to the first page or be the top seller on Amazon? Have you have you figured it out yet? My Amazon partner has. <laughs> so we actually have an Amazon partner that works on commission on our product and uh, he is the expert. So I don't know how he does it. How did you find him? Let us in on the secret. <laughs> 
We actually were reached out to by like so many Amazon experts that if they see a product that they think they could sell a lot of on Amazon, there's people that do this for a living. And uh, we were just getting emails saying, we'd love to put your product on Amazon. This is our fee structure. And I sorted through and sifted through and talked, interviewed a whole bunch of them. Just It's kind of an outsourced team member and uh, interviewed a bunch of them. And the, the guy we ended up going with, he knows how to do all of that. Do you have a tip on how to choose the right partner? Because I'm sure a lot of small businesses are looking into Amazon and trying to, or getting approached by someone. How do you make sure that that person actually knows what they're doing? References. So definitely check product references. So not personal references. <laughs> definitely what products have they taken to market on Amazon before? Let's see the pages they've set up. Let's see where they're ranking. Let's see what their reviews look like. And a lot of, yeah, word of mouth is really big and fee structure is really big for me too. Food products have very well-known smaller margin than, um, let's say, beauty or health products, for example. And so uh, fee structure is really, really, really important. And that our partner had experience in packaged goods and specifically in food. Got it. Totally makes sense. Now, during... I guess pre-COVID, when you were setting up, going from a small business to a facility and uh, carrying EpiPen around, any difficulties, challenges that you had to overcome that you know you would warn other small businesses to, to to be aware of? I always say this when I get asked this question: is I do really think everything takes three times as long and costs three times as much, so. That would be like a word of advice to anyone, I guess, getting started. And I'm a big advocate for NDAs, so non-disclosure agreements. That's just something that covers you if you're having conversations with anything from broker groups or brand management groups or facilities or, yeah, manufacturers that you work with because people can take your ideas, especially when you're um, coming hot into the market with something innovative. I've gotten burned a few times just not having an NDA and having conversations with people I shouldn't have been having conversations with without having things signed and in place. So, yeah, I think that answers the question. That's actually really good because, uh, I mean, uh, people usually say budgeting, making sure you have enough money, right partners, founders, but NDAs, we don't have those uh, come up very often. Was it that the people took the recipes away or the brand? What was it that in the food industry that people should be aware of? Yeah, I had someone take one of our product ideas. So I didn't end up launching that particular type of product because they it was a manufacturer actually that then launched that product. And the other thing was someone took kind of our idea around, I guess, the brand and then replicated it in a different way based on, that, that doesn't make much sense because I don't want to like pinpoint anybody or say specifically what brands did it. But yeah, basically took the idea and, and replicated it and, and took market share. That's that's horrible, but I guess that's a good lesson for everyone. Sign the NDAs. I mean, they don't protect you 100%, but at least it gives some kind of ability to go after them. So that's good. 
In terms of lessons learned during COVID, I know you were prepared for it better than others, but I'm sure there are some pitfalls along the way. Yeah, we were luckily prepared because we already had e-commerce set up, but we were working all in the office together. And so, yeah, big change for us was just that isolation, I guess, and not having the team all together, being able to chat and work collaboratively on things. So, yeah, we got set up on Slack, which which was really great. It was such a strange time for me because I was actually on maternity leave when the pandemic hit. So I was at home with my son anyways, and then working kind of in the office a little bit, but mostly from home at that time. I just remember it being like a blur of all these things happening and me trying to balance not knowing what the pandemic was going to do to the business while also trying to take care of this tiny infant that, that had just been born. Yeah, it was just balance and meditation and yoga and concentrating on the important things in life, especially my family, and then transitioning the team over to as much online technology as we could. So that's what worked for us. In terms of growing the business I guess, at home or before, are there any strategies or I guess any models that you use yourself personally, like how you manage the business growing, scaling and so forth? I would say we focus on multiple revenue streams and that kind of answers your question before as well about COVID and and the flexibility that you have to have with that is we've all learned now that things can change very quickly. We don't know what's going to happen uh, with stores shutting down or with e-commerce booming. And I think as a business, you just do have to have multiple revenue streams. So we have our e-commerce on our own website. We have Amazon, but we also do promotional products. We also do wholesale. And within wholesale, we have multiple revenue streams like food, grocery, uh, health and wellness, and gift channels. And then we're also working on food service as well. So that would be into cafes and restaurants, which again was something if that was our sole business, that would have all been shut down over the pandemic. So yeah, it's just being flexible and having multiple ways of running your business. Should one of those shut down, then you can turn full attention onto the one that's growing. How do you focus on develop? Like, did you focus on developing all of them at the same time? Did you have a plan of rollout? It was really uh, very much focused on wholesale at the beginning. So the rollout was really based on what we were getting pull from. So obviously, as I had said, I was selling at smaller artisan markets. Retailers were approaching me. So then I got ready for retail. And then with retail comes website and social media. So then we were focused on e-commerce and Amazon became really obvious. And then restaurants were asking for, once they kind of got to know the brand or saw it in grocery stores or gift stores, then we had some cafes and restaurants approach us. And so we got pails, bulk pails of honey added into our product collections. Promotional products is just something we're working on right now like customized products that are sold to like Fortune 500 companies, let's say, for for gifting. And and again, that's something that we just, as a brand group, people saw the brand and then reached out to us. So everything we've done has been really 
I wouldn't say it was planned for a certain date, but it was more of the pull market that we were getting for it and then making sure that we were set up in one area before we started really ramping up in another so that we weren't pulled in too many directions. Interesting. So if you could go back, would there be something that you would do differently or adjust or do faster or not do at all? (laughs) I don't think so. We've done what we were supposed to do when we were supposed to do it. There, we've, I think, have had really good growth as a company. And given that part of my, like, it was in year three, somewhere between year two, three, that I had my son. And I guess it was year three. And how that kind of played into it, because I had to take some time off. Yeah, just staff changes and how quickly we wanted to grow, which was something, a personal thing for me, is I wasn't out there to grow extremely quickly and have no life at all. I was out there to grow a quality product as profitably as we could and maintaining really good core brand values and sustainability. Like we became a B Corp as well, which really plays into a lot of this. That really helped us choose where product was coming from and make sure that it was um, sustainably done the entire way along that. And you just can't rush that stuff. So I would say no, like I'm, I'm happy where we are. I love that answer. That's, that's right. There's never any mistakes, learning opportunities, and then the rest just as it should be. Now, in terms of the team, how big is it? It's a small internal team. So we have five of us on the internal team and then a very large outsourced team. So we've got a brand manager who has 25 or so people on their team. And that is someone that has our product, but also a very small number of other products that they broker into the stores and they do sales pitches and they do in-store setup for us and all of our promotional calendars into grocery channels and health and wellness channels. Then we outsource marketing. So we work with a marketing agency or freelancers. And then we also have distributors. So distributors have the warehouses and then they work with the brand manager and the distributors have their own teams as well. So there's lots of sales reps and brand management groups within the distributors. And who else do we outsource? We outsource Amazon, as I said, Um, Ads management is outsourced. I think that's it. So what you're saying is it takes a village. It's not just a one one man show or one woman show. Correct. Very much it takes a village. And everybody runs their company differently. We also don't manufacture. We don't own the facility. And that really changes things too on the size of our team because I don't have to have people running the equipment on my payroll either. Same as my brand management group. They're not on my payroll. They're paid on commission. So it's just about how the company is structured and and that changes how many people you have on staff and in-house versus outsourced. And that leads to the stuff that you say, you know, you're able to grow lean and well and really focus on the things that need growth. Now, how do you choose the people to bring onto your payroll? Like what are the qualities or how do you make sure that they are top-notch? I really always try and look at what does the company need and I think it falls. I I don't have a business degree, but I, I have read somewhere that you need a, a marketing person, a financial person, an operations person, and sales. That's the other person. So those are the four roles that I try to bring in-house, that there's at least somebody managing each of those little groups and then we can outsource assistance to each of them. 
that's how I decide on, on what roles. And then how do I pick the person? Very much based on how I think they're going to fit within the company culture, very much based on their skill set and do they have an entrepreneurial spirit. And so that's looking at what do they do outside of work and in their past jobs, do they have experience working with small business? Were they interested in themselves like blogging or doing podcasts or doing social media that somehow amplified small business? Because that just goes to show that they're, they've got some, some interest in it. Um, education level, of course, is always important, but not the top piece. And of course, we always try to hire a diverse group of people and we don't exclude. I love how you manage humans. Now, in terms of your strategy on day-to-day, because obviously you are one woman who has to basically run it all. Are there any tips, secrets, success principles that you utilize in your day-to-day to make sure that you know, you, you know exactly what's happening, but you also have time to manage your personal life, to do the business and all the other things? I'm a big scheduler, so... I use Outlook. It's like old school, I think. I don't know if people use Outlook anymore. That's, but it's a big thing for me is I just schedule in the time and I don't uh, just have a free-for-all day where I'm just responding to emails. I, I very much have a tackle list and I try not to check my emails at the beginning of the day because that can just completely derail what you're actually meant to do that day. So before I open my emails, I will go through my accomplishment list or what I want to accomplish that day and make sure that, you know, I prioritize what actually needs to be done. And then maybe I'll get to my emails later in the afternoon. Same thing goes with Slack. Booking time off of anything, just like shutting it all down throughout the day too, I think is really important to tackle your to-do list. And then in terms of balance and how do I do it all, I don't really believe in a work-life balance. I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur and a business owner, you personally, I don't think you should have that expectation. It's just for me, it hasn't happened. And so I just let it go. It's not part of my life. Work-life balance is not a thing. And I, one kind of molds into the other. I work when I can. So my priority is spending as much time with my son and my family as I can. And if that means that I work when he goes to bed, that's fine. If that means I work when he's napping, that's fine too. And if it means not having the standard nine to five day, then, then that's all right. And so, yeah, just finding time for myself outside of that as well is important. I like how you said that, you know, there shouldn't be an expectations of life, work-life balance if you're an entrepreneur. And I believe in that. I believe that life is all about integration because some days are easier than others. Some days you just have to work until 12 a.m. And this is what it is. And maybe the day after you won't have to. Maybe you can take off at two, take your son for a walk and do something else. So totally agree with that. Now pivot, Dragon's Den. So... I know a lot of small businesses who would love to be on the show, who want to learn more about the experience from the start to how do you get on? How do you make the cut to the secret of getting the deal? Can you walk us through it? So I wasn't actually on Dragon's Den. I have an investment from Arlene Dickinson, who is on the Dragon's Den, but I didn't actually have to go on. But I can explain to you that whole thing. So, so yeah, I wasn't on the Dragon's Den, but Arlene Dickinson is one of the investors, as everybody knows on there. She has a business accelerator based in Calgary. She talks about it a lot on the show. 
And basically you apply if you're a CPG business and she gets a whole bunch of applicants from across Canada. She also pulls some people in from Dragon's Den and they get into the program that way. I was in one of the first cohorts they, they ran, like I think it was three years ago. So got into the program, you're set up with mentorship, you're set up with an office space in Calgary, and you learn all about how you run a CPG and distribution and brokerage and manufacturing. And some of the companies are offered investment. At the time, she wasn't offering investment to any of the, the small businesses running through the cohort because it was just an accelerator. So we were all very small. But as my company grew, uh, after about two years of being within that accelerator space, then her uh, venture capital group approached Drizzle and asked if we wanted to work out a deal with them. So that's how that came about. So I didn't actually go on the Dragon's Den. Uh, I just work with Arlene's venture capital portfolio. So what you're saying is you went directly to the source instead of going through the rounds and being on TV and <laughs> dealing with all that. You just went straight to the source and got the deal. Yes. Which I think I, I would say that definitely people can do that. I, I don't see why not. If you can somehow contact any of the people from the Dragon's Den, uh, if they can give you their time somehow. Arlene's got a unique structure in that she's really set up to bring businesses under her portfolio. And I do know that it's called District Ventures Capital. And they've got a website. And if a, if a company feels that they are ready to gain attraction from investors, then definitely reach out to them. Is Accelerator still running? Yep. So what's the secret to how get in? Because I'm sure you have to be chosen to get in the Accelerator. I know it's changed so much. I think they're on like cohort 10 or 11 when I was in cohort number three. I would say just based on the application I can remember, they were asking about financials and market share. They needed a business plan. They needed forecasting and projections. You just need to be a really professional, available, high quality. You just have to approach them with the business that is is going to be worth their investment. That's actually pretty good advice. And I, I like how there's no no fluff. Like you just have to have the good numbers, know what you're doing, know what your market share is and have the hustle. In terms of the opportunities that you see in the industry going forward, and I mean, it could be in honey, in product, CPG, Amazon, you choose. <laughs> what do you think is going to be it over the next couple of years? I think that the so food industry, that's what we'll talk about because that's my space. I really feel like everyone is turning away from processed food, heavy brands, the companies, you know, that are own everything in every category that is just not high quality local produced food. And people right now are looking for functional foods. So that's foods that have added benefits like superfoods and immunity support and antioxidants. So I really feel like functional foods are, are trending now and will continue to trend. And uh, we're moving away from processed foods and into foods that have really clean ingredient decks that are free from artificial ingredients and preservatives and that trend is just going to keep going and all these small brands that are flexible and innovative are going to take over market share from the really big companies. So we'll see 
probably the really big companies and we already are seeing them acquiring small brands because they simply can't keep up. They're too big to have the right ideas and the, the right innovation and the flexibility that the small brands have. And yeah, all these small brands are just going to slowly take over and probably be bought up by some of the big companies. But overall, we're going to see a transition to healthier food. I like that. And I totally agree with you. I agree with you on the local and superfoods. Now, are you, and I mean, that could be very private information. Are you planning to release uh, supplements and get into other product lines or no? We're definitely going to get into other product lines, but I can't talk about it. Love it. (laughs) No, that's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. And then I guess another question, also feel free to not answer. A plan for you to be one of those large companies that grows or you'd rather get acquired? I'm really happy doing what I'm doing right now. I don't know what else I would do if I didn't have Drizzle. Everything that I always wanted to do, it's creative, it's fast-paced, Um, It allows me to do things that are really good for the world under the umbrella of the company, such as sustainability and working with female entrepreneurship and and bolstering females within business. We uh, collaborate with the BIPOC community and uh, we donate to pollinator research. So it's, I don't know how I could find that within any other career and, uh, And I think we're doing a lot of good for the planet and for other people. So I don't see why I would stop doing that. That's the same question I would have. Now, when you quit your job, and it was like years ago, but making that decision was obviously probably not easy. And uh, once you realize that you're allergic to bees, EpiPen, that was a big challenge. For a person who is looking right now to maybe switch, find a new career, find a new passion, what would be your suggestion or recommendation to them? When should they quit? How do they find that passion? I don't think anyone should quit their job until they know that the product's going to work. <laughs> That's just personally, I mean, some people just go for it and, you know, they, they have a lot of belief in themselves. I personally think you should get some traction, like test the product out in the market. So for us, like I said, it was those artisan markets that we were trying the product out at and just see what feedback you get. Like if you get sales there, and really strong sales, then chances are you're going to get strong sales outside of that as well. So after that, just go for it. I've also seen people just drag it out and they just don't take the plunge and they just can't, they're too worried about it. I mean, everybody's got different life circumstances that prevent them maybe from doing what I was able to do. But yeah, I would say just go for it and don't hold back. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to fail and that's not too bad. You can learn and then you can pivot and you can adjust and you can do something different. And I totally agree with you on the fact that a lot of people spend time analysis paralysis where they think and overthink and they try to make it perfect and then never launch and then the opportunity passes by so it doesn't work. For you, when you come up with a new idea, either it's in a brand or product line, what's your process? Like, (laughs) Do you have a limit of time that you need to execute in or do you have mental models that you use? It's very much based on what I'm seeing kind of trending within the industry. And there's always, I have a thousand ideas all the time and then they're just kind of floating around. And then I don't know what triggers me to say that's what we have to do. Like that's the next thing. I guess it's just like a culmination of all the things lining up so that we are able to do it at that time. Because you have to have your manufacturer, you know, the packaging has to be available. 
we have to be able to find the ingredients. And sometimes those things are just not possible. Like, for example, this product that we wanted to launch um, over COVID, but the packaging just wasn't available for it because packaging is a huge issue right now. It's hard to find because all the um, manufacturing facilities are shut down that make glass and plastic. But um, yeah, so it's really just about the stars aligning for it a lot of the time. And then there's the other business side of it where I really do look at a SWOT analysis and I look at who's in that playing field and is there a gap that we can bring a product into that uh, nobody else is in. Because as I said before, innovation is so key when you're pitching to buyers. They don't want to see another copycat in Me Too product. They want to see something that's going to get attention from customers and that they're going to be able to talk about with excitement. And they just are not willing to bring in products that they've seen before. In terms of the trends and innovation, how do you find them first? Like, what's your process? Is it just online research, Google? Are there certain programs that you use, software, maybe people you follow? Yeah, social media is a really big one. Like, you can learn a lot from that. Another place that I used to before COVID was just walking around markets and seeing what people are selling and becoming interested in and just being a part of your city's culture. I know that sounds really unscientific, but it's like that underground cultural movements, these little like cult groups of people that are into certain things that then those ideas become widespread over years, right? Like think about superfoods. Nobody knew what superfoods were five years ago, but there's probably a little group of hipsters that were making superfood milks and things like that. And, and now look where we are now. Uh, same thing with the vegan trend that's happening. Uh, and then I also do look at um, industry reports. So it's really easy to find through Google, like just type in 2021 trending products. And there's a number of groups, Canadian Grocers, CHFA. So that's Canada Health Food Association. Um, Whole Foods releases one the Expo West and Fancy Food Shows, which are both big trade shows in the U.S., they release certain things on their website as well. And then there's also Nielsen data, which is a really big uh, data source. Uh, I think they're around the world, but they compile data from grocery sales and just sometimes you can find bits and pieces of it floating around on the internet. Otherwise, you have to pay a lot of money to access that data. And, And that's a really good indicator too of what's going to happen. How often do you do like this trend updates? Like, is it just constant every day, every week, maybe once a month, once a quarter, you do a big research? No, I don't. No, I don't do a big research day. It's just always something that I'm doing. It's part of my job. I'm subscribed to those newsletters. And so sometimes every day I'll, I'll get something that kind of tweaks my interest in what's happening within the industry. And then if I'm working on, let's say a pitch deck, or I'm really looking at a certain product, you know, we're going to hire the marketing agency and the marketing agency wants to know what needs to be called out on the product packaging. Then I'll do like a deep dive into what is the rest of the industry looks like or, or the rest of the products on the market look like for that. So it's really dependent, but it's part of my job as a founder or I've made it part of my job anyway. Got it. No, that totally makes sense. Now, the question about debt and equity, because I know you received uh, financing from Arlen Dickinson's firm. The founders or entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out how to finance their small business or how to grow, what would be your advice, considering you went through it all? 
So I used personal loans at the beginning. So I had money saved up that I, that's how I ran the company was just through that. And I also worked with uh, Futurepreneur, which is a Canadian entrepreneur funding agency. I got a really small loan from them. Like, honestly, I think it was like $20,000 maybe. Uh, and that just gave me some cash flow. So just something to work with. And then I think that was the investment came shortly after that. So it's, again, very dependent on how fast you want to grow the business, how much you have in personal savings, um, whether you can do a friends and family round, whether you can borrow money from your parents, which I know a lot of people do. And I think it, hugely, hugely dependent, which probably people don't talk about that I'm realizing is, is a big thing, is how many founders do you have? That's big because, you know, if you have three founders, then you have potentially three times the amount of money going into it at the start or, or sources of places where you can get loans from or borrow from friends and family. So um, for me, that's why I did the investment probably maybe faster than some other companies would have was because I needed the support and the backing. And with the investment from Arlene's group comes a board of directors and mentorship and yeah, just it's a team of accounting professionals and people that you can bounce ideas off of. So as a solo founder, that was something I needed. And so it was an obvious choice for me to give up some equity to get that in return. That's perfect. Thank you for sharing that because I know that that's a lot of, you know, a lot of founders struggle with it because they think that VC money or equity is sexy and it's something you have to get. But as you've proven, no, you don't. You can start with personal loans, financing, grants, maybe some other financing options and then go from there. For sure. And actually just this morning, I have a friend, she owns Happy Pops. It's a popsicle company. And I saw her post on LinkedIn that uh, she hit her five-year mark. She didn't give up any equity. She's a profitable company. Maybe she didn't grow as fast as a company that would have given up equity and gotten investment. But here she is with this really sustainable, growing company. And that's great. Like That's so much better than raising a whole bunch of money and flopping out faster than you could imagine because you didn't know what you were doing. You were growing too fast. And all you cared about was raising money and taking market share when it wasn't yours to take yet. Like there's, I think there's so much glamour and talk around raising money and investment and it's not necessarily the right choice. I absolutely agree with you. It depends on the business. We see a lot of businesses that raise a lot of money very fast, as you said, you know, glamour is trying, trying to take the market share and the founders end up not really at the end of it all, owning the company and they lose that passion because at the end of the day, the decisions they have to make, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. They have to align so many things with the board of directors and other shareholders. And at the end of the day, you can't take those executive decisions and make them as fast as you want. So you're absolutely right. Now, in terms of the people, the books, the resources that you consume, anything that you can recommend, especially, I mean, you mentioned that you don't have a business degree, so you had to figure everything out yourself. So if you could share in your resources, that would be great. Yeah, I don't have my business degree. And when I had first quit my job, I ended up reading small business management books just to get an understanding of how to run a small business. I read books on creating business plans, and I just dove into, I really like Seth Godin and, and Tim Ferriss. Those were two 
five years ago, like let's say five, six years ago, they were both really big in that the marketing and small business scene. I think they still are. I don't listen to them as much anymore. And then from there, yeah, I really love a book called Grit. It's just about, it takes longer than you think it's going to take. And all those overnight successes are actually not overnight successes. You just didn't see what was happening behind the scenes. And uh, how I built this is a podcast that I listen to. Uh, and I also really got uh, involved in a lot of Facebook small business groups and female founder business groups. Those were pretty essential, just having people to bounce ideas off of. Uh, and yeah, now in terms of, of resources that I consume, it's much, much less than I used to. I think it comes with having confidence in the ability to run your company. And after just having a few years under your belt, I'm more focused on the day-to-day company than consuming and learning as much as I used to. I absolutely agree with you. And thank you for sharing. There's a lot of, I love to say that there's a lot of creators or advisors that are good potentially for seasons of your life. So I love Gary Vee when you're trying to start something like launch, get off the ground and you need that motivation and execution mode. He's fantastic. And he even says himself, he only has 15 different things that he talks about, but they're technically the same. So if you listen to him for 10 years, you can be like, well, it's the same message. And I feel like it's the same with a lot of the creators, but they're there for every season of your life when you need something. In terms of next steps, exciting opportunities for you guys, what's in store for hopefully beyond COVID? (laughs) I'm hoping we're almost out of it. Anything you want to share with us about Drizzle and where you guys are going? Next steps, I would say, as I talked a little bit about before, we're going to be launching into the U.S., and so that's a big focus of ours. But we're also ramping up to do food service. So we really do want to have Drizzle available in in more cafes and restaurants as COVID closes down. That's just a personal goal of mine, and I love that industry. I love good food, and I think we have really good honey, and I think to collaborate with some some big cafes and restaurants would be awesome. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about new products. As I said, those are all proprietary ideas. And uh, yeah, I'd say just keep an eye out for all the things that we're doing on social media. We're trying to be more creative with the content that we bring. There's a lot of repeat content and trends happening, whereas we, we try and do things differently and come out with new ways that you can use the product. So we focus a lot on recipes and collaborating with artists. For example, we just did an illustration with a a Toronto-based artist and released that as just a way of giving back to the community as well as bringing a little bit of sparkle into the work and design that we do. That's amazing. Is that going to be art on like the product or no? We're going to use it for the website and for some branding pieces and possibly on swag. It's just a neat design. I don't know. It's that that interplay of uh, art into product. And I just hate the staleness of products. This is, again, like a creativity piece. It's like everything always looks the same. And and I don't want our product to look the same. Um, So how can we, yeah, bring in art into food in a way is something we're playing with right now. I love it. Have you guys thought about NFT, non-fungible tokens? <laughs> no, I have not. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll send you an article after. I mean, I know a few creators or a few CPG companies who did like a partnership collaboration with artists 
and they created like a video from their product that they tried to sell on um, online for a few Ethereum coins. And uh, yeah, the artist made money, the brand got exposure, and it was just like this awesome collaboration. So we can discuss that offline. Yeah, sounds great. I'd love to hear about it. Perfect. Well, on this note, every person that comes on the show, we ask the same question. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. A millennial is. A millennial is the generation of people who broke down the current workforce rules and uh, restructured how and where we worked and the types of people who, who lead our companies. A millennial should be. Millennials should be open-minded, upbeat. They should be interested in problems of the world and they should devote themselves to quickly solving them. This is great. And a millennial is not. Millennials get pegged for being self-centered and uh, unaware of, of problems in the world, but I, I disagree. I think Millennial is not naive to the world's problems. We're just consuming it in a very different way from previous generations through social media and that we are actually way more exposed to it than um, previous generations. And so, yeah, Millennial is not naive and we're probably carrying more of the world's problems than any previous generation has. Yeah, I love those answers. Yes, and I agree with you. We're not self-centered, not at least not all of us. The best way to get in touch with you to learn more about the brand, I guess, to get your products, should people go on Amazon? Should they go straight to your website? Tell us everything. Go to the website, <laughs> drizzlehoney.com. And uh, we're always available for questions at info at drizzlehoney.com. Uh, and our social media is at drizzle underscore honey and you can easily get a hold of any of the core team members that way perfect anything else you would like to mention discuss that we haven't talked about no i'm good perfect well thank you for being with us super glad to have you and uh yeah you're welcome anytime once the new exciting products launch i want to see what those are thank you so much for having me 